This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Mets fans, welcome to episode 226 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us this week. Hope you enjoyed our short but fun live episode from the ARG last week. We had a lot of fun, but we're back with a regular show. And so first up, Chris McShane and I talk about a possible Neil Walker extension. Uh, the, uh, well, more stuff here. Enjoy. Well, Chris, we are about uh, 10 days into spring training as we record this. Everybody's in the best shape of their lives, obviously. And uh, a couple of small storylines have started to emerge for the Mets this spring. The first one is that the Mets and Neil Walker have been discussing a contract extension. Now, as of today, the talks have hit a snag or stalled. They're not quite dead, but you know, however you want to characterize them, they're not continuing a piece uh, sorry a pace right now uh the the rumored snag hit was that the Mets want to restructure the 17.2 million dollars that Walker is due this season and hopefully reach reach I guess shuffle that towards the back end of the contract extension so that they have more money on hand in 2017 um Let's first talk about whether or not, if you were the Mets, you'd be offering Neil Walker an extension, Chris. So perhaps this is my David Wright love speaking, um, but I'm more comfortable with a player coming off the type of surgery that Walker had than maybe the average Mets fan is at this point. Um, If things had turned out differently last year and, you know, Michael Conforto had been the right fielder consistently or or at least the you know the the regular at the major league level and Jay Bruce weren't brought on board we might still be thinking hey Dilson Herrera's here uh the fact that the team gave him up in that deal I don't know if they would have been thinking the same thing they might have been you know looking to retain Walker for this year no matter what 
Um, so all of that said, Herrera is gone. Uh, it doesn't sound like he's getting the first crack at the job in Cincinnati either. But, you know, he's gone, and Walker's here, and there's no obvious replacement. You know, it's it's a situation where, of course, there's some risk because of the back surgery, but it does sound appealing to me to go into 2018 with Walker and Cabrera, and hopefully, you know, Rosario is made his way and established himself and then you know walker or cabrera could play second or third um you know well, as much cabrera as they is did. not under contract for next season no they have an option though oh they do i forgot there's an option on him yeah yeah let me just okay. double check but yeah it's uh i'm pretty sure it's a similar salary to what he's been making um yeah 2018 option is for eight and a half so okay. slightly more than he makes this year. And the buyout is two. So at that point, you're really looking at it. I mean, it's the Mets. They're going to count all the money. Of course. But, <laughs> but you're only looking at, you know, a cost of six and a half million. Because that two of those eight and a half are going to be paid to him, whether he plays under contract for the Mets in 2018 or not. Right. You know, so I mean, if he falls off a cliff and he's terrible, then you eat the two million. But... Uh, coming off the season he had last year, I'm optimistic that he will at least maintain a level of play that would get you to pick up that option. So I like the idea, and I know I'm uh, hopelessly optimistic with with David Wright's ability to play at this point, but I like the idea of having the potential to have an infield that includes uh, Walker, Cabrera, Rosario, in some combination, obviously Rosario would be at short in this, you know, hypothetical. Right. But I like that idea a lot. Uh, you know, you come off the end of this season, and hopefully it's a, a very high point. But still, due to his free agency, you know, it's another year, another season under David Wright's belt. Assuming, you know, even assuming he stays relatively healthy and plays throughout the year, still another year. Um, so I like that idea of guys who are definite major league depth, you know, right. And, and Reyes is a free agent too, at the end of the season. And I have no idea what happens there, but that's a fascinating question actually. Yeah. So I'm not saying he's untouchable in the sense that no other team would pick him up. I'm just curious to see what that looks like, what the rest of his career looks like. So, you know, there's, Extending Walker at least guarantees that you have a guy who should be an option. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I'm not one to think that the back surgery that he had is going to derail his career. I don't necessarily think it's going to derail his career. That said, I don't see what the upside to getting an extension done right now is versus one later in the season. To me, there is no risk to waiting and seeing if the back surgery is anything all that major. I mean, do, do you see a real difference in the dollar amount for Neil Walker's contract if it's negotiated in May or in March? I think the only thing is that it probably, that his salary 
for this season couldn't be modified once the season begins. But I don't, I can't say that with a hundred percent certainty. But I, right. I'm just trying to think of what what's the benefit to doing it now. I mean, either that's one. The other would be that he's willing to sign for a significant discount because he hasn't gotten back out to show that he's right. healthy yet. Right. So that's that's it. I mean, he seems to be a guy. You know, not to try to figure out too much about what goes on in a player's head from afar. <laughs> but the guy was drafted, developed, and played for... Uh, His hometown team. Right, the Pirates forever, and then they traded him away at a point that they felt it was necessary. But there at least seems to be some interest in staying in one place again for him. You know, he doesn't... I don't think Neil Walker uh, comes off as a guy who wants to go the Kelly Johnson route right. in terms of, you know, teams played for over the next few years. So, yeah, I, I'm curious. I like him a lot. I think, you know, last year might be the best year that he had for the Mets, but that's not necessarily an insult. He was really, really good um, until he, you know, like everybody else on the 2016 Mets, succumbed to season-ending uh, surgery. <laughs> right, right. You know, my my whole point of this is just I'm I'm a little bit hesitant just because it's the Mets to sign Walker to this sort of extension. Because if this were another team in a similar market and place on the win curve, a Neil Walker extension, even if it went totally bust, wouldn't necessarily impact their ability to do other things this season or next. I can't honestly say that's the case with the Mets because I don't know. Because the Mets traded Gabby and Noah for cash. Yeah. Yeah. We'll We'll touch on that in a little while. (laughs) But, you know, the idea that the Mets just do not have the sort of financial flexibility that Alderson continues to claim that they, in fact, do have and uh you know i just don't want to see the mets this time next year say you know well we really wanted to bring in a free agent at first base but we had but we spent you know x amount on neil walker for the next 3 years and then he had a terrible season because of his back yeah yeah i'm i'm just looking at the uh the free agent class it's not exactly inspiring <laughs> Um, I mean, I sincerely hope that they bring Duda back as long as Duda doesn't have a horrific year this year. It's well documented on this podcast that Lucas Duda is good. And, uh, you know, I want him on the 2018 Mets as long as he's coming reasonably priced and has a Lucas Duda-esque 2017 season. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd like to retain him. You know, I think it's very possible that we could see the changing of the guard to Dom Smith. Yep. But given where the team is, as you referenced a few minutes ago, I'd rather have the proven MLB commodity, uh, you know, which if he's himself, he should be uh, again over the course of this season. So, yeah, I agree. Um, but I think that, you know, the uh, 
the idea of the Mets wanting to restructure Walker's money for this year is an incredibly Mets thing to want to do. Um, it's also something that I understand, but there's almost no way for the Mets to not look like they're pitching pennies at this point, right? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's when you try to imagine what the sort of conversation would go like, you know, it would be a tough sell to say, oh, hey, uh, so let's take some of that money we already guaranteed you and move it to next year or the year after, you know? Mm -hmm. But I imagine they're trying to frame it more as, okay, if you had been on the market, we can look at the kinds of deals that other guys got. Uh, even if you look back to Murphy last year or, you know, just what the free agent class looked like this year, I imagine they're trying to sell it in that way that if you had just been a free agent and turned down the QO, what might you have gotten on the market? Can we agree to that as a two or three year contract in total? And then if we do it that way, can we, you know, just divvy it up how, how we would normally do that? So, I mean, to be honest, I don't even think once a guy got a QO, you could go back and <laughs> change anything about that salary. Right. I, I have, I mean, I will admit I am woefully ignorant with that sort of uh, contract talk, but I I'm with you. I didn't think I thought that was guaranteed money. I guess the argument could be it's guaranteed over a number of years, right? But I don't know. This is a, this is an odd situation. I'm not totally against it. I think if it's a two year extension, which is what's been discussed, that means that the Mets have a backup plan for David Wright, kind of for Lucas Duda, and kind of for Wilmer Flores. You know, if Flores doesn't take a step forward this year and you kind of always see him as a perpetual, you know, man on the bench, well, then Walker protects you from that a bit. If Wright only plays 20 games, Right, uh, Walker protects you a bit from that. If Duda walks and Walker has another 30 home run year or near 30 home run year, I think he had what, 23 at the end of the season while yeah. missing the last month. So, you know, if he's hitting 25 home runs or so, you know, that protects you against against Duda's walking away a little bit. It, it does it does give a nice cushion for the team. My concern with with this sort of in the macro sense is just that the Mets have enough infielders right now. They probably have too many infielders. Do they have too many infielders that are better than Neil Walker? No, they don't. But, you know, I, I think the time is going to come for them to invest some money next offseason. And I think it will be nice to have relatively few uh, – to have relatively few glaring holes. On the, I don't think – I think the Mets are going to need a first baseman next season, and they're going to need possibly – another uh you know another outfielder depending on how how things go with with Lagaris this year with Conforto this year I just don't know if I want to necessarily spend a a large portion of a not so large budget on uh on another middle infielder right yeah yeah it's if the bargain's good enough I mean I'm on board with a walker extension generally and if the bargain's good enough, then you know that makes it all the more tempting. But 
one or two months into this season, even you should have a a pretty decent idea, you know. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting that they seem much more comfortable with Walker's return uh, and recovery than Duda's. Yeah, they're the same age. Um, you know, obviously everybody's different, and every surgery is different. But you know, you, you you've heard some early things about needing to see how often Duda can play, that kind of thing. Where you know you haven't really heard that with Walker. Right. But maybe that just has to do with a minor leaguer who they're high on that they think is that one step away that they can sort of build up the Dom Smith hype and also the the letdown of Duda walking and, I don't know, hitting 35 home runs as the DH slash first baseman of the Twins. Yeah. You know, something along those lines. Well, um, that, that's the interesting thing here is uh, maybe – the desire to keep Walker is a sort of um, what's what I'm looking for, a covert way of saying that Dom Smith's not going to be the power hitter that a first baseman should possibly be. Ah, yes. See, it all it all comes back to Dom Smith. Yeah, that that that, that is the point, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is the point. And uh, if you have email questions about Dom Smith, you can always email us at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And we have three emails we're going to touch on this week. First one's from our friend Brad. Brad says, I'm having a little trouble with the Met thought process for dealing Yanoa for cash. Please comment. Well, if you heard the live show from last week, we talked about this a little bit. But I think there's two things to talk about here. The first is that the Mets are in worse financial shape than they want you to think. Because that's the only reason I can think of for really trading Yanoa. And the second thing is that the Mets don't see Yanoa as a player with as high an upside as perhaps some of the Amazing Avenue staffers would like to believe. Uh, is there a third option here? Um, I mean... It- if I'm trying to find a, a explanation, yeah, I would say maybe that's just of the group of Mets pitchers who were on the bubble to be removed from the 40-man roster. That was the one that the Orioles liked best. And that's what made it happen, you know? Um, just looking back at it, I think it's entirely possible that, you know, it might never turn into a significant major league pitcher. And that that's not just, I think that's something that even his supporters on our side have said, uh, along the way. But I at least understand why people were questioning why Montero is still around and he's not, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, I'm just looking back a little bit here, seeing, Seeing, yeah, uh, looking back at the top 25 write-up of, you know, uh, you know, Greg, Greg had uh, jumped off the bandwagon, as he put it, huh. before last season. Or, sorry, sorry, no, before this season. The lists all start to blend together. I know. <laughs> over the years. Uh, but, but he he had kind of given it up on him. Uh, you know, Lucas was 
I think encouraged by the the uptick in strikeouts when he was in the major leagues, and then Steve had uh, kind of, you know, not changed much from from a so-so opinion of him. So, yeah, it's I, I don't know the, the, those back end of the roster decisions. I think sometimes are easy to read into. Absolutely. And in the end, probably don't matter that much. Uh, it's I mean, an odd one. I mean, when we talked about guys who might come off the 40-man roster, he didn't come up at right, all. Right, exactly. I was just going to say that. You know, this can't be seen as just a a way to get somebody off the 40-man roster because there are much easier ways to do that. And ways that don't mortgage any bit of your future, let alone... A guy who, you know, some, you know, I some people whose opinions I trust as recently as a couple of months ago were saying that this guy had, you know, potential to be a, at least an average, if not above average, major league pitcher. You don't just give that up for a little bit shy of a million dollars. You just don't do it. Yeah. I mean, I guess the one thing that you could say is that the the Mets had reached a conclusion that he was not going to be good enough to help them. That's an optimistic way of viewing it. <laughs> it but, but no, they they would have they would have had to reach that conclusion, right? I mean, otherwise, otherwise it doesn't make any sense. I mean, even, unless even they were the that, unless they were that in need of a million dollars. Or eight hundred fifty thousand, right. whatever it's going to wind up being in the long run, but and that seems unrealistic to me. Yeah, I, but I mean, it, it, they may be wrong in that in making that conclusion, but I would I think and hope at some point they said, you know, nobody nobody's going to see why, but we think there's more value to this organization in Rafael Montero or Sean Gil Martin. I mean, those you know, you say that sort of thing that doesn't compute based on what we've seen. Although Gil Martin at least had one good major league season, yeah. Right. I feel like his path has been kind of awkward. You know, the Rule Five draft forced him to be on the roster. He did pretty well. He didn't really get opportunities to elevate from long or middle relief to something more significant, and then came into his second season without those restrictions, and then basically was, you know. Occasionally called up, yeah. and didn't do well when he was here, and spent most of the year in Las Vegas. So, yeah, I I, I don't know. It, it's odd. I will say we got the first name right. <laughs> and, he, and he cleared waivers. You know, Ty Kelly was, yeah. was the first guy to come off. So I'm I'm just going to use that email here as a, a way to <laughs> point out the time the, that we were right. Horns, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why not? I think we call ourselves out when we were wrong. Yeah. So, I'll I'll, I'll own the uh, Ty Kelly DFA. <laughs> and uh, any clear waivers, he's still in the system. So, that's the best possible uh, outcome for that situation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who I think when you know, if and when somebody's on the sixty-day DL, and uh, you, you know, you can add someone to the forty without a penalty, he's a guy who could easily come back. Yeah. Yeah. As I've said more than once in the podcast, he looks too much like Jamie Kennedy for my taste. So, uh, you know, 
That's okay. He, he is a big Seinfeld fan, which that is true. Endears him to me, and certainly to Green Ricky. Yeah, and certainly to the Mets organization, who clutch on to the Seinfeld thing, perhaps a little bit too tight sometimes. Yeah, I mean the guy does buy a box every year. So. Yeah, that's true. And uh, Keith Hernandez should thank his lucky stars every single day that he was on Seinfeld. Yes. <laughs> well, he does like to talk about the royalties on air. <laughs> I forgot oh, about that. Since we're on a, a tangent, we won't go too deeply into this, the uh, official announcements of umpire retirements. It was weird. Uh, Major League Baseball were recording this uh, on Tuesday, so as this uh, day has happened, they had announced the official retirements of a few... Uh, Bach and Bob Davidson, uh, Jim Joyce, Tim Welke, and um, there was a fourth umpire. And I think there had been reports of a couple of those guys along the way uh, over the course of the last year, but you know the league announced and made it official. Right. Uh, so I am going to miss when Gary, Keith, and Ron, Keith in particular, though, uh, would talk about James Joyce, anytime Jim Joyce yep. was an umpire uh-huh. for a Mets game. You know, little things like that that, that uh, help fill 162 games of, of uh, you know, of time and, and keep things interesting. So, yeah, Keith, uh, Keith's always good for an esoteric reference here or there. Yeah, and he's not a fan of Joyce. No. The writer. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I actually didn't read about the umpire retirements today. I've, I've been away from the computer for much of the day, so I'll have to ah. do it when we get back. Uh, breaking and- news right here on the podcast to each other. <laughs> yeah, breaking news about umpire retirements <laughs> is about as low impact of breaking news as you can get on the internet. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, our second email this week comes from Michael. He says, hey guys, long time no right. It seems like more likely than not, Michael Conforto will start the season in Las Vegas. I'm sure we would all prefer that he was starting in Fletching, but I'm happy they aren't giving Jay Bruce away. He has value and will, assuming anything approaching a normal year, be at very least a more valuable trade chip come July. Then again, he might have a career year and lead the Mets to a championship. He's playing for a contract after all. My question is this, how long will Conforto have to remain in Vegas for the Mets to acquire an extra year of control? I see on Baseball Reference that he has one... Okay, this is definitely a hilarious typo. Oh, no, it's not. There's a period there. I thought it said there was 1,043 ah. years of service time, <laughs> but it's 1.043 years of service time. Uh, I'm just not sure how that translates into today's month on the Major League roster. I don't want to see the kid get screwed, but I won't cry if he is a free agent in 2023 instead of 2022. Do you think Sandy is going to take Conforto's service time into account beyond the fact that he has a remaining option in making his roster decisions? That's an excellent question. Well, I'd just like to thank Michael Conforto to come into the podcast for uh, advice on his service time. Yeah, exactly. We got an email from Michael, right? That's a, yeah. Uh, yeah. a little bit convenient there, Mr. Conforto. <laughs> uh, so how do we unpack this? Uh, do, do you want to start with the... Uh, I, it, I almost feel like this is a throwback because we haven't talked about Jay Bruce in like three weeks that is true we're, we're back on bruce avenue audio here um i will say this i think that alderson has been clear in the past that while service time matters it is not the end-all be-all of what he uses to make a decision 
And I think if the Mets, you know, I, I hate to use this phrase too much because I think it's, it's, it's a bit overused in baseball, but where the Mets are on the win curve, if they need another outfielder, with the window that they have, I can't see Alderson being cute about Conforto's service time. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think it's sort of a an unintended benefit to the team if it just happens this way. You know, plan A, uh, a theme that I think that has come up a lot in the offseason for a variety of topics, did not include Jay Bruce being on the roster. That's clear. Uh, you know, I think Bruce has handled it well. It's it's an awkward situation, but I think once you get into actually playing games, even spring training games, and then certainly the real ones, that kind of thing might fade away. Uh, I don't buy too much into playing for a contract. You know, I think generally speaking, that's something that gets a little overhyped. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, and because guys are. I mean, unless you just signed a 10-year deal, unless you just signed Giancarlo Stanton's contract yesterday and you have $325 million, I think was the total guarantee to you, mm-hmm. most players are still playing for future earnings, no matter right. where they are in their careers. Um, you know, So I think that gets overblown a little bit in general, and I think there have been some people who have looked into it over the years and essentially found that there isn't really a boost for that. Uh, I think Jay Bruce's defense might not be any better than what it was rated at coming in, but his offense should absolutely be better than it was as a Met. You know, and that that, that doesn't even need to be amazing, but it was really really bad. He um he was on one of the Mets hot stove shows this week, and he said, you know, pretty much flat out, look, I'm not gonna make any excuses. I played poorly with most of my time in New York, and I, I'm better than that. And I think that that is a bigger motivator than playing for a contract. I think that you know Major League players have a fair amount of ego, as they should. They are the best at what they do in the entire world. And I could see Bruce wanting to prove that he's better than the guy who couldn't be traded for a bag of balls this offseason. Yeah. You'd be hard-pressed to find a professional athlete who is not competitive. Right, exactly sort of the name of the game you know <laughs> yeah so um but so to, to go back to michael's question here i don't think alderson is going to hinder the 2017 team at the benefit of having an extra year of service time for conforto that said i think that if somebody hits the 15 day dl or i guess now it's the 10 day dl right uh, yeah, yeah, that is. I have to get used to saying that. If you know, if if, uh, if Cespedes hits the ten day DL on April fifth, God forbid that happens. But if that were to happen, I don't know if Conforto would be the first one up. I'd like to think he would be, but I also don't know the exact calculus of when playing time becomes beneficial. Do we do we have a number on that? Um. No. <laughs> that, that, sorry, that's my short answer. <laughs> yeah, but, but what I'm saying is that if, you know, 
I think if it's come June and somebody's going to be out, or even come April and somebody's going to be out for a substantial period of time, you're going to see Conforto come back up. If it's a 10-day spin on the DL for something that seems small, I don't know if the Mets then burn that year of service time. Yeah, I will say if you're looking for a silver lining of Conforto possibly playing in Las Vegas, he might provide a nice barometer, uh, so to speak, of what Dom Smith is doing there. Right? Because Las Vegas and the Pacific Coast League are very hitter-friendly. Right. Might be tough to contextualize things. So if Smith has hit 25 home runs uh, in in that environment in August, but Conforto's hit 60, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It it at least might give some context to it. I'm sure if he's in AAA, Conforto's going to be destroying the ball. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean that he will come up and be the 2015 version of himself or the April 2016 version of himself, but I'm sure it'll go well. I think there's at least a, a, and, and, you know, I don't want to make an excuse for a team to dock a player's service time, but there's a, a baseball argument to be made for the guy playing every day uh, you know, they, they cited some of Wally Backman's tendencies on his way out of the organization in terms of how he deployed guys like Conforto and uh, Brandon Nimmo. You know, so with a more organization-friendly manager in place at that level, I, I would say, I think that's probably fair. Absolutely. To, to Wally Backman and, and everybody else involved. With Pedro Lopez there... If he's doing exactly what the front office wants to do, Conforto's playing every day, he's hitting against lefties, that kind of thing. There's at least a baseball argument that there's much more value to his career in him playing baseball and getting four or five plate appearances per day uh, at AAA than being in the major leagues and knowing the tendencies of your your major league manager. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably not playing that much. And I think sometimes the Terry Terry hates rookies thing also gets a little overblown. But if you had Conforto on the roster with the other outfielders, I am confident that he would have the least playing time of the five. Absolutely. By, by like a good amount. So By a country mile. Yeah. Although Ligaris, the combination of health and inability to hit right-handed pitching. <laughs> That's true. He, he might compete at least. That's true. I, but, I will say this too. I think that having Conforto spend a, a chunk of time at AAA might be instructive to Terry Collins to show that Conforto can hit lefties. Because, you yeah. know, I, I think Collins is probably the person in the Mets organization, or at least the vocal, the most vocal component of the Mets organization that believes that Conforto can't really hit lefties. So if if somebody can point to Conforto's, you know incredible stats against lefties at, in Vegas, maybe that will help Collins think that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, obviously everybody's dream scenario here is that Bruce tears the cover off the ball. Conforto's doing the same thing in Las Vegas. Uh, another team comes in and offers the Mets a player, not just somebody who gives you the relief for Bruce, but a player who can come in and, and step in and help on the major league roster. Uh, right away because you know even in the worst case that you 
you know, you make that move, you get rid, you get rid of Bruce. Say it's a relief pitcher, or maybe just an infielder, depending on the health of anybody, you know, or or a catcher, right? Uh, whoever it is, say they bring in somebody who at least can be a contributor on a contending team at any of those spots, uh, and then say Conforto comes up and gets a shot and flops again, you know, the the post April version of himself. But at least in that scenario, even though you traded Bruce away, even if it's the, like the best possible version of Bruce, then you're in a spot that you have Granderson can still step in and play right, and you can kind of hack it in center with you know Ligaris and Nimmo. You know, there, there's enough flexibility there, uh, roster wise, I think, yeah. to, to get by even if Conforto doesn't, you know, fire on all cylinders uh, when he gets his first shot this year. Is there any part of you that thinks that regardless of how the season goes for the Mets, is there any way that barring major injury to one of the other outfielders, that Jay Bruce is still a Met on September 15th? I mean, it's possible. You know, the email reference, I think it would be one of the funniest things in the world if he... Uh, if he turned out to just be good, they didn't trade him, and then he, you know, he carries the team, or at least does for periods of time, uh, on their way to a World Series championship. You know, I, I would hope that if he were celebrating that sort of thing, and he was still on the Mets, that he would look just as lost as he did when they uh, made the wild card game. <laughs> like I, I appreciate self awareness. You know, I think that's sort of what we love so much about uh, we follow Lucas Duda. Right. Right. Just some sort of self awareness of uh, what they're doing and 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 some of their personality traits and all that. So, yeah. But I I would say going in, I, I have I would say it's a non-zero chance that he finishes the year on the Mets. Non-zero uh, is a fair bet. Would you say it's more than a twenty-five percent chance? Uh no. Maybe that that might be about the right number. You know. Uh, some team out there is going to need an outfielder and they're not going to want to give up the ridiculous demand that I'm sure that the Mets would make to send Conforto to them. Or even Granderson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I, I think it's some team out there will, thanks to the second wild card, be in it a little more than they might've thought they would have been. Um, and they might say, Hey, you know, look, even if we're not talking about the best case scenario where Bruce is amazing and the Mets can actually get something in return, if they get to July and they're like, all right, we're ready to change back to Conforto. Um, and you know, if we trade him away, we can maybe acquire a couple guys and, and make that a wash with salary. I could see some team taking Bruce on essentially a salary dump, um, for a half season, you know? Yeah. There have certainly been less valuable players traded for a salary dump at half season. Yeah, yeah, and I mean particularly, uh, I think American League, so you can negate the defensive aspect of it, and you know he has legitimate left-handed power, um, even in even in his struggles with the Mets. I know a flurry of the home runs came late, but he did still hit eight of them in yeah. you know two months. All right, our last email of the night 
comes from an unnamed email sender. He says, hey guys, what's up? I was wondering, with Reed being named the closer in absence of Familia, do you see a scenario where Terry Collins leaves Reed as a closer if he's lights out? Or, when, when Familia comes back, is the job, no matter what Reed does during his suspension, his? Um, I think that... Well, th- this is a tricky situation. If this was any other... Injury situation, like for instance, if Familia, you know, had a had a broken finger and was going to miss the first thirty games, I think at that point there's sort of this um, unspoken agreement in baseball that the starter gets their job back at least to start. It's theirs to lose then. But I think because Familia is being suspended for domestic violence, because baseball is trying to crack down on domestic violence, and I think because the Mets have to be hyper aware that they now have two players on their active 25-man roster for whom domestic violence has been an issue in the last two two years, I could see Familia being not necessarily thrown back into the closer's role. I think it's unlikely that he is not the closer if he's healthy and playing, but I could see it... I'm going to put it right at the the Jay Bruce 25%. Uh, what, What about you, Chris? Yeah, the only thing I can think of that might factor in aside from those things, and and, and they might, they very, they very well might, um, is just the whole, you know, service time. Familia's up for his final year of arbitration next year, and we saw uh, over the course of the last few days sort of the ugly fallout from the Yankees arbitration case with uh, Dylan Batances, you know, and the difference between the guy who has saves to his name and who doesn't since the arbitration process is uh, unevolved <laughs> in terms of what's valuable to a major league bullpen. So that to me, you, you, it, like I think of that, but I also don't know how much, uh, how much difference you can make in saving money on Familia in arbitration when he's already had a good track record of it. Even if he didn't have a high saves total this year, I imagine he would still be able to draw upon, you know, the fact that he had done it before and done it very well. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say the job is probably his, if only because there's not that much benefit to them uh, financially next year in suppressing his saves total. Right. From a baseball perspective, it's not a big deal that I mean those two guys as good as they've been as Mets. There's not really a huge difference between one of them being the eighth inning guy and ninth inning guy, right? Um, you know, I mean, obviously we, uh, I think, generally subscribe to the idea that you maybe want to abandon marrying uh, or saves in in terms of you know, in-game decisions on what to do with your bullpen. But yeah, I I imagine it basically looks like the bullpen looked at the end of last season whenever Familia is is a part of it. I agree. All right, the last thing I want to talk about, we should probably be quick about this as we've been chatting for a long time, is um, (laughs) earlier last week, Zach Wheeler had some discomfort in his throwing elbow during his bullpen session, 
And uh, luckily there was no structural damage, and he appears to be feeling better now. But it has sort of put into question the idea of the fifth starter for the Mets, both at the start of the season and throughout the season. And just more, I guess, more pressing and, and more importantly for this career, um, what do you think the future for Zach Wheeler is? What do you think the 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 chances are that he gets through this season healthy? You know, we've been told that he has probably a low 100s uh, innings limit. So, you know, do you think that there's a reasonable chance that Wheeler hits that cap? Do you think that they put him in the bullpen? Is he the fifth starter? I'm asking a lot of questions, Chris, but you understand what I'm saying. What's, <laughs> what, what's your feeling on Wheeler right now? Well, going into the beginning of the season, Gazelman would be my top choice for fifth starter. Agreed. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, another one is I would take the under on, let's just say, 100 innings for Wheeler. Um, I like him. You know, I thought there was promise there. I, he was pretty good. Not great, but pretty good in his time that he was in the major leagues. Uh, and that's not something to sneeze at. You know, it's not easy to be a pretty good major league starting pitcher. But between that track record, the fact that he's missed two years entirely, uh, I'm sort of at a point where I'll believe it when I see it in terms of him being in a major league game uh, and then take it from there. So, you know, he didn't want to be traded away. He wanted to be a part of this uh, back when he was almost traded. And, uh, you know, at that point he was only six months or less removed from his surgery. Um, I'm trying to think. He had the surgery. It was probably, yeah, it was less than six months. It was four or five. Uh, so I respect all of that, but I just don't. If he's healthy, I could be optimistic, I think, about uh, a return to form and then maybe an improvement upon what he had done, not necessarily this year, but as he comes back, I could get back into that, oh, hey, Zach Wither might turn the corner right. mode that uh, that we were in over the last few months of 2014 when he was really, really good. Um but yeah, it's just not everybody comes back from Tommy John, and I think that's something that we kind of take for granted. Sometimes rooting for a team where a bunch of guys have had it, and for the most part, they've come back. And you know, some of them did it before we ever saw them as major league players. Uh, you know, obviously Matt Harvey did it in front of us, but we've been spoiled with guys who have excelled at the major league level, despite having that in their past. And I hope Wheeler is able to do that. I just think there's at least some chance that he's not as fortunate as those other guys have been. Yeah, that's a very fair assessment. I think I think we, you know, Wheeler has said he would rather start than be in the bullpen, but he'll do what the Mets want. I think starting him in the bullpen – Working him, and I'm usually not a fan of working a starter in the bullpen to uh, to start a season. But I think with Wheeler, there's so much unknown there. There's not just the unknown of what pitch, what kind of pitcher he really is, because we did see two. We probably saw four different types of Wheeler over the course of his couple of years of playing time. You know, right. we saw that the guy who threw four seemingly 400 pitches a game because people could foul them off. 
we saw dominance, we saw lack of control. So to to get some sort of idea of of who he is, the bullpen is useful. It also gives Gazelman a chance to prove if he is the uh, the real deal, which I certainly think he is. But I know there are people out there who are less confident in that, and that's fine. But it gives that opportunity, and it gives the opportunity for Wheeler to not only prove what kind of pitcher he is, but to prove he's healthy, because that has been so hard for him lately. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the bullpen, I don't think it's the end of the world. It, you know, it's sort of an unnatural path to get there. But some great pitchers, and I'm not putting Wheeler on, you know, I'm, I'm not throwing this pressure uh, upon him that he needs to be one of the great pitchers of all time. But, you know, it's sort of like he's being reacclimated to the major leagues. Uh, and there have been great pitchers who have gotten their you know the shot in the majors in the bullpen and then moved even though they had traditionally been starters and then moved into starting roles um so i know i understand his point about you know once guys move there they usually stay there especially if they're effective but i think at this point uh having a successful major league career for him would be from here on out would be a very positive outcome. So, you know, even if it's putting himself in that role and then taking that risk that maybe he gets stuck there, if he excels at it, it could still be a very good rest of his career for him. Yeah. Getting, then, st- uh, getting stuck in the bullpen is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a misnomer. You know, guys make a lot of money. Guys have good careers out of the bullpen, and you hope that he uh, he could have both those things. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back next week for um, another episode. And uh, spoiler alert: guys will still be in the best shape of their lives. to Forgotten Mets back from hiatus over the winter along with the boys in orange and blue. I'm your host this week, Brian Renzi, and with pitchers and catchers reporting this week, we'll start with a catcher who led the Mets in Grapefruit League homers prior to the 2008 season. He was a switch hitter and a real Casanova as well. His name was Raul. Raul Casanova. 2008 turned out to be Raul Casanova's only season in Flushing and the last of his big league career, but it turned out to be a fitting bookend. Casanova had been drafted by the Mets in 1990 in the eighth round out of Puerto Rico as a 17-year-old and spent his first three pro seasons in the organization. But before he had even played a full season in A-ball, he was the player to be named later shipped to San Diego, along with former pro running back DJ Dozier and reliever Wally Whitehurst in exchange for... Tony Fernandez, who, as we all know, was the final piece of the puzzle to complete the 1993 team that lost more games than any Mets squad after Shea Stadium's second birthday. Incidentally, it was really easy to get autographs at Shea in 93. Really not much of a crowd to fight through before games or during games. Um, I still have a 93 yearbook with almost everybody's signature in it, and I'm never letting it go. But I digress. 
Anyway, back to Casanova. In 1994, he hit 340 with 23 homers and 120 RBIs at High A Rancho Cucamonga, which got him ranked as Baseball America's 60th best prospect in all of baseball coming into 95. Thus, the sexiness of a switch-hitting catcher with pop showed Casanova to be plenty alluring. But he would never approach those counting stats again, and it wasn't long before he was on the move. Let's hope he used a moving company with a loyalty reward card, because starting with the Fernandez trade, Casanova changed organizations 14 times in 15 years. He played 100 games in an MLB season only once, but he must have done something well because he was brought back for two stints with three separate teams, the Orioles, D-Rays, and our beloved Mets. In 2008, uh, the Mets signed him for organizational insurance after Paul LaDuca left contentiously, going to the Nationals, and the Mets had taken the Nationals catcher, previous catcher, so it was a in in free agency, Brian Schneider, so it was a bit of a, you know, free agent trade, if you will. Um, And uh, in spring training, Casanova impressed in limited at-bats. He had 40 plate appearances and hit three homers, drove in 10, and put up a slash line of 297, 350, 595. Of course, small sample size, but it did... It certainly didn't hurt his case when Ramon Castro went down with the hamstring injury at the end of spring training. So that found Raul Casanova on the Mets' opening day roster. A couple weeks into that season, Schneider got some sort of thumb infection, which sidelined him for a couple weeks because, you know, it is the Mets. Um, And my memory at the time, I I was... uh, I was living in a place where I didn't really have very reliable internet and was only able to check box scores once in a while, and I started seeing the name Casanova show up. I was like, who is this guy? But, wow, what a name. And uh, he, he certainly acquitted himself well early on. He made 10 starts between late April and early May, and he picked up four multi-hit games, including a three-hit performance, which featured his only homer as a Met, coming off John Smoltz and helping to propel the amazing to victory over the Braves on the last Sunday in April. He hung around until the first week of June as the backup, when, unfortunately, his father passed away and he left the team for a few days. He came back, got a couple pinch hit at-bats and one more start before Castro came off the DL. Um, at that point, though, Casanova was sent back to New Orleans, never to return. Well... That's not exactly true, but we'll, we'll get to that in one second, which is, you know, his post-baseball career. If you look him up on YouTube, you'll see him running some pretty uh, pretty cool catcher drills at uh, youth camp. kind of teaches you a thing or two about blocking a ball in the dirt. Um, and you, you see him passing on his wisdom about the tools of ignorance. Uh, and recent, more recently, it seems he's been working for MLB. Evidently, last fall, he was in Regensburg, Germany, teaching clinics for coaches from Europe and Africa. So it's, you know, he's, he's trying to uh, help baseball spread around the globe. Uh, it's, it's really great to see Casanova's love for the game enduring and inspiring so many.
Well, I hope you had a good Valentine's Day there, Mr. Casanova. And I know the rest of us did with the return of baseball. And for all you out there, thanks for checking out Forgotten Mets this week on Amazing Avenue Audio. This has been Brian Renzi, and we'll catch you next time somewhere down Amazing Memory Lane. Hey everybody, this is Steve Saipa, and I want to talk this week about the 2017 World Baseball Classic, which starts on March 6th, so it's about two weeks or so before the competition starts. Um, right now there's about 63 All-Star players playing in the competition this year, and there's a bunch of MLB talent and uh, minor league talent, but I want to talk this week about some of the some of the non-MLB talent. There's a bunch of teams that are mostly comprised of players that play in those individual countries and don't really get that much exposure here in North America. So I want to talk about those teams and go over some of those names to watch. So first, uh, let's look at Team Australia. And Liam Hendricks and Warwick Sopold are the only MLB player, are the only MLB arms that are playing on that team. They um, Hendricks plays for Oakland and Sopold for Detroit. And the team is mostly comprised of an assortment of minor leaguers, indie ball players, and ABL, Australian Baseball League players. There is not really a lot of frontline talent on that team, uh, but there's a lot of kind of gritty talent, guys that, um, you know, veterans of the game are still in on their late 20s, early 30s that are playing baseball in the minors or in independent leagues across the world, and they really just love baseball and want to, you know, pursue it as their career, even though they're older. So the top, uh, their top hitters are Luke Hughes, Mike Walker, and Tim Kennelly, who are the three top ABL hitters, and they really don't have any top pitching to speak of. So their hitters are going to really have to pick up some of the slack there. But they do have one kind of minor advantage, I would say, in that the ABL season just ended. So a lot of those players have the slight advantage of being live ball ready, and the pitchers are stretched out right out of the gate. So, uh, you know, that that could make a difference. Uh, Next, I want to look at Team Taiwan. Uh, The CPBL, which is the Chinese Professional Baseball League, um is not recognized as the governing body of baseball in Taiwan. The Chinese Taipei Baseball Association is. The two groups, the CPBL and the CTBA, recognized, uh, uh, supported two different managers to head Team Taiwan. And in the end, the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association um, won and had the manager they backed appointed the manager of Team Taiwan, since they are officially recognized as um, the group that's in charge of Taiwanese baseball by the Taiwanese government and by international organizations like the Olympics and the World Baseball Classic itself. So, as a result, the CPBL is protesting the event to show that they're the ones that really call the shots, and one entire team, the Lamingo Monkeys, has refused to allow any of their players to play on the World Baseball Classic team. So that means that um, a lot of top talent uh, in Taiwan is not going to be playing in the competition this year. Uh, Wang Po Jung, who is the Rookie of the Year and set the record for most hits in a season um, and arguably is the best player on the island, is not going to be playing for Team Taiwan. 
And then making things worse, they named a few veterans to their team in the preliminary rosters. Uh, guys like Chin Ming Wang, the former Yankee, Qian Fu Yang, and Wei Chung Wang. But publicly, all those guys have said that they don't want to play. And as a result, they're unlikely to actually attend the event. So on top of that, Taiwan is playing down a few roster spots. So there's a couple of bright spots on Team Taiwan. Um, Chao Ching Cheng and Ping Hui Shen are two guys to keep an eye on. They both throw uh, in the low to mid-90s, and they're both uh, minor leaguers in the Cleveland system. And uh, Kuo Hua Lo, who was just released from the Twins, also is a guy that hits the mid-90s. So they have a few arms that, you know, could... Stymie, you know, major league hitters. Um, they have a few other guys that were former MLB talents. Um, Fu Ni, who's a left-handed pitcher. Chin Lung Hu, who uh, many Mets fans should recognize. Shea Swan Lin, who's an outfielder. Chi Shen Chang, who's a third baseman. Young Chi Chen, who's also a third baseman. And Hung Wen Chen, who's a right-handed pitcher. And they also have a couple of domestic players who could uh, have have an impact. There's Yi Chuan Lin, who is a three-time MVP in the CPBL. There is Qi Shen Lin, who just had a 30-30 season in 2015 and was the MVP. There's Qi Hung Su, who is the Rookie of the Year in 2015. Uh, there's Qi Hao Chang, who is an excellent fielder, one of the best in Taiwan. There is Huang Cheng Lai, who is a current setup man for the EDA Rhinos. Well, former EDA Rhinos. They're now currently the Fubon Guardians. But he's the setup man. And then there's Shen Xing Huang, who is their current closer. So they have a couple of guys that are not going to make fools of themselves. Next, we'll look at Team Korea. And they have not that much quality pitching, so the bullpen is going to have to pick up some of that slack. They have a pair of left-hand starters. There's uh, Hyun Jung Yang, who is a left-handed pitcher for the Kia Tigers, and he was posted a few years ago, and I wrote about him on Amazing Avenue. So I'll just plug myself, and you can go look up his scouting report there. And there's another left. their other left-handed pitcher is Wu Chen Cha, who is a left-handed pitcher for the LG Twins. He sits in the high 80s to low 90s, features a solid slider and a changeup. Uh, fortunately for Team Korea, they have a pair of quality relievers in Song Hwang Oh and Chang Liam Lim. Both guys are older, though. Oh is uh, mid-30s and Lim is 40. So the starters and middle relievers are going to have to bridge the gap to them. Uh, but they both have pretty good nicknames, with Lim being known as Mr. Zero, and O being the stone-faced Buddha, and the final boss, so there's that. But fortunately for them, their team, they have a pretty solid offense. Uh, there's a couple of guys who I think can thrive in this competition. There's first baseman slash DH, Deho Lee, who will resign with the Latte Giants, and is actually now the highest paid athlete in all of Korea. Uh, I know he didn't really have that good of a season... Uh, in the in the major leagues uh, last year with Seattle bouncing up and down the major league system and the minor league system but he is a legitimate uh he is a legitimate bat uh they also have another first mi- first baseman 
uh, Tae Kyun Kim, who is a veteran f- uh, playing on the Henwa Eagles. The, their third baseman, Sakmin Park, is a veteran corner infielder who played most of his career with the Samsung Lions, uh, but he now plays for the NC Dinos. Uh, they have a shortstop, uh, uh, Ha Song Kim, who is an up-and-coming slugging youngster from the Nexon Heroes. And they have a pair of veteran outfielders in Asap Sun, who plays at the Latte Giants, and Hyung Woo Choi, who is an outfielder with the Samsung Lions. Next now is Team Cuba. Um, in the past, I would say never bet against Team Cuba. You know, cons- consistently, they're always one of the best uh, baseball teams in international competitions. But the last couple of years, as a result of some of those core players getting older and a lot of those talents uh, defecting to other countries and leaving the leaving the country, uh, Team Cuba has had a, a little bit of a um, talent drain. But they still they still have a, a pretty decent team. Uh, look at some of their pitchers. Uh, there's Freddie Alvarez, who sits in the mid to high 80s with an average slider and excellent, excellent command of his pitches. There's right-hander Lazaro Blanco, who... Uh, statistically is one of the top pitchers over the last couple of years in in Cuba. There's right-hander Vladimir Garcia, who was one of the top pitchers a few years ago, but he's kind of regressed because of um, some hand and shoulder injuries. He used to sit around 90 with his fastball, but now it dips into the mid-80s or so because of those injuries. And his slider was very sharp and, you know, could be graded average to above average. But it's lost some of its uh, tight spin and it's a little bit more slurvy and fringe average as a result. And probably their most intriguing pitcher is a left-handed pitcher, Levon Moniello, who is a little five foot nine, one sixty pound 20-year-old lefty. Uh, but he sits in the mid to high 80s and obviously uh, there's a little bit room to add some velocity to because of his size. And he already throws an average curveball, an average slider, and a plus changeup. So there's a guy to keep an eye on. Looking at their offense now, I'll just run down some guys to uh, pay attention to. Uh, this first baseman, Guillermo Aviles, who is a kind of contact-oriented, converted first baseman. Uh, he has some good on-base skills, but he really has fringe power. And they have, uh, to counter, to to balance that, there's first baseman William Saavedra, who is an older veteran corner infielder uh, with some pop. They have shortstop Jordan Mendule, who is a gold glove caliber shortstop, and he has the ability to put up some decent batting averages because of um, his ability to make contact, but he has really fringe power. Uh, their catcher, the, probably the primary catcher, is going to be Yosvani Alcaron, who is a power hitting, you know, power power hitting catcher. And backing up him up is Frank Morejon, who is um, really a isn't much of a hitter, but he's a defensive oriented uh, backup. Uh, the third baseman is Yoris Bel Gracial, who is a veteran with solid uh, speed and good power, but he's a poor fielder, so have to watch out for balls hit to him. In the outfield, they have a couple of intriguing names, um, and that's really, I think, where most of the talent is on this Team Cuba. 
there's Roel, Roel Santos, who's a contact-oriented contact slap hitter, who is so-so defensively, but he really has 80-grade uh, speed. He's probably the fastest guy in Cuba currently. There is Alfredo Despagne, who is the best player in Cuba, and arguably, I would say, has always been, even with guys like um, Abreu and Guriel there. Um, he Despagne hits for average, he hits for power. He's a decent outfielder, better than he looks. He's kind of a little older and a little stocky, but he, he's decent. And he has about uh, you know average to above average arm. Uh, there's Victor Mesa Jr., who is the son of Victor Mesa, who is a very, very famous um, player in Cuban history. And basically, Victor Mesa Jr. is an up-and-coming uh, 5-2 outfielder. And Team Cuba also features another up-and-coming 5-2 outfielder, one Yoki Cespedes, who happens to be Ioannis Cespedes' half-brother. And like his brother, he's a potential 5-2 player. Um, Yoki really hasn't shown the power that his brother has, um, but he's a good hitter. He's a lot faster than Cespedes, and he has the uh, Cespedes arm, and he also has the Cespedes genetic eyebrows. And last, I'm going to look at uh, Team Japan, Samurai Japan. Unfortunately, Shohei Otani is not going to be participating in the 2017 competition because of injury concerns. But uh, we get the next best thing, who is a right-handed pitcher by the name of Shintaro Fujinami. He is, I would, even though they play on different teams, Fujinami plays on uh, the Hanshin Tigers and Otani on the Nippon Ham Fighters. But I would say that Fujinami is the DeGrom to Otani Syndergaard. Uh, Otani is pretty, pretty much just as good on the pitching side anyway. Obviously, no pitcher is as good as, uh, of a hitter as Otani is. But Fujinami is just as good as a pitcher, but he is kind of uh, doesn't get all the media attention that Otani does. Much like Degrom is just as good of a pitcher as in the guard, but he obviously does not get as much uh, media attention. So Fujinami sits in the mid nineties with his fastball, um, and at six six, one hundred ninety pounds, there's still uh, some room that he could add velocity in the coming years. So when and if he ever comes to America, that mid-90s fastball might be a uh, mid-to-high-90s fastball, which would be pretty exciting, especially since he complements it with um, an average above-average slider and a, an assortment of secondary pitches. He throws a curveball, he throws a changeup, a splitter, a forkball, a shooto pitch. So he, he has the uh, whole kitchen sink there. Uh, another guy that Samurai Japan has um, that can be a guy that can be counted on is right-handed pitcher Takahiro Norimoto. He basically replaced Masahiro Tanaka as the ace of the recruiting Golden Eagles. Uh, his fastball sits about 89-94, and he has three above, average to above-average pitches um, that go with it. A slider, a splitter, and a changeup. And a uh, third ace that... Team Japan is going to be running out is Tomo Sugano, who is the ace of the Yomiuri Giants. Uh, he used to hit the mid-90s with his fastball, but after a ligament injury a few years ago, he's more low-90s. Um, and he complements that with uh, a plus curveball that he throws kind of two variations on, a really tight one at about 80, 
and a bigger, loopier one at about 70. And he's a um, control artist. He has excellent control. And he also consistently posts very, very high ground ball rates. So those are the big three when it comes to um, Team Japan's pitchers. Then there's another guy. He's not really that great, but he's just a guy in a quirky, interesting uh, player to watch is is uh, Kazmakita. He is a submarine pitcher that plays for the Seibu Lions, and he pitches very, very fast in between pitches. Uh, I mean, Mark Burley is known to be one of the fastest pitchers in, you know, Major League Baseball over the last couple of years. And Makita basically makes Burley look like Jonathan Pavlobon, who is one of the slowest in recent years. So looking at their offense, um, the guy to keep an eye on there is their second baseman, uh, Tetsuo Yamada, who is basically a 22-year-old phenom from the Hiroshima Carp. And uh, he won the 2015 Central League MVP and probably has the most talent in Japan right now among uh, young position players. He hits for average, he hits for power, he has plus speed, and really the only knock against him is that he's a so-so fielder, which is why he went from shortstop to second base. But at second, a lot of his problems are hidden, so, you know, it's mitigated. Um, they have a shortstop, Haido Sakamoto, who is a veteran shortstop on the Giants, Yomiuri Giants. He's a solid offensive profile with a plus glove, and he reminds me a lot of Hiroyuki Nakajima that um, came over to the U.S. a couple of years ago and uh, did not really do so well. <laughs> and they have another outfielder, uh, Yoshimoto Tatsugo, who's a slugger from uh, Yokohama Bay Stars, and he led the Central League in home runs this season, and he gets compared a lot to Hideki Matsui. So really, on Samurai Japan, uh, Yamada is the guy to um, keep an eye on. And for any listeners out there that might just happen to be Hiroshima Carb fans, cough, cough, Stuart, congratulations for having uh, such a talented player on your team. And hopefully he stays in Japan and doesn't uh, get posted in the next couple of years. So anyway, so those are those are some players to uh, keep an eye on in the World Baseball Classic. And next week, uh, we can talk a little bit more about the WBC. So thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. This is Steve Seibert. That does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thanks for listening. Make sure to go to AmazingAvenue.com where you can find all sorts of information about the Mets, about spring training news, uh, photos of players in the best shape of their lives, etc. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. You can find the show at blogtalkradio.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on your podcatcher of choice. Please rate, review, and subscribe to it there. And, uh, Feel free to email us with questions, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Uh, you can also follow all of our contributors on Twitter. Chris is at Chris McShane. I am at Brian is an app. Brian Renzi is at brenz78. And Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. So next week, we'll have already had a couple of Grapefruit League games, and that's fun. So uh, enjoy those games, and until next time, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets.